Well, I was scrolling through the social medias the other day. You guys have heard of the social medias, right? I came across a few videos where a man would set himself up on the street, and unbeknownst to the people he was going to talk to, he had a pocket full of cash, and he would just ask them random things. For example, one time he said to a man and his son, if you can make me laugh, I'll give you $500. Most of the people, of course, being Americans, were like, yeah, no way. Something's wrong there. This guy's out to get my money somehow. So some people just completely ignored him. Some people actually gave him a second look. Then there was one man and his little son who stopped by and said, okay, sure, we'll make you laugh. And it was actually his son that made him laugh. And sure enough, the man handed over $500 in cash. The guy could not believe it. And he just said, why are you doing this? Because I can. Because I want to. Because the money's mine, and I can do with it what I want to do. And I came up with something, and I wanted to spread some joy. And so this is the way that I am doing it. And of course, once the man realized that it was for real, he went on his way. And he was overjoyed with his son. And think about that on a cosmic scale with God. He has unrestrained power. He has unmatched resources. He has limitless love and mercy. And it brings together two massively important spiritual concepts that are critical for us to understand who God is that are the bullseye of this passage this morning. Not only that, these two massively important spiritual concepts are critical to how we live our lives before God. They are critical for our joy. They are critical for our ability to endure trials and adversities and critical to our testimony of the world around us. And here they are. God is 100% sovereign and God is 100% gracious. Meaning that God is the one in total and complete control of all things, every single thing, every ant in his creation, he is in complete control of. He has the ability to bless beyond measure, and especially in our salvation. He is then 100% gracious in the way that he does that. He lavishes grace on us, and the thing about grace is we don't deserve any of it. Just like that man that walked up to the other man, what did he do? Didn't deserve that 500 bucks, but he gave it to him. Jesus is going to illustrate that for us in a well-known parable this morning in Matthew 20 that Piero read for us. Last week, we encountered counter-cultural Jesus once again, flipping cultural norms on their heads. He accepted the children that culture rejected, and he rejected the rich young ruler that culture would have definitely accepted In so doing, he taught us a completely new way of looking at things. We need to put into practice now the renewal that God has given us through Jesus Christ, and especially as we think about his return, when he will renew all things permanently, right? We need to be thinking of how we are renewed completely now. At the end of chapter 19 last week, Jesus dropped a very important statement that we're going to expand upon today. He's actually going to explain that very last statement. Look with me again at chapter 19, verse 30. Simply, he says, but as many who are first will be last, and the last first. The disciples must have been scratching their heads and tugging at their beards once again. What is he talking about? That's not the way things work around here. That's not the way the world works. 
The world system is about being the greatest, the most powerful, the first. I think Jesus must have sensed their confusion and then takes an opportunity to teach them in detail what this means, and that's in chapter 20. Look at verse 1, just to refresh us. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. So we have some contextual unpacking here to do. Jesus, again, is teaching about the kingdom of God, one of his favorite topics. He compares it to a vineyard, the master of a house, or basically the owner of this vineyard. Vineyards were a common sight in first century Palestine, as they are today. It's a great place, hot and dry, to grow some grapes. Grapes are used to make many things, but one of the most important things they made at that time was wine, the water was not all that great to drink, and wine is a staple drink of that culture. So the vineyard owner goes out to the marketplace to hire some day laborers, also not an uncommon sight. The marketplace was kind of the hub of all business back then, so they would go into the marketplace. They would frequently see day laborers there. This man probably had a whole fleet of regular farm hands or vineyard hands or whatever the heck they call them, but he needed more. Maybe he was harvesting. Maybe he just needed more temporary help. And so he goes into the marketplace early in the morning, probably at dawn. He hires his first batch of workers, and he says, come on, get in the van. Let's go back to the vineyard. They agree on the wage of one denarius. Okay, standard daily wage for a laborer, for a soldier, for something like that. And because I know some of you are dying to know what a denarius looks like, there you go. There you go. A denarius, right? There is Caesar, and whoever was in charge right now, in case, this guy, Caesar Augustus, who apparently had a giant neck, he's there, and that is when you are in power, you get to have your money, your, your face, rather, printed on your money, right? Recall when Jesus with the, the tax, right, and he says, whose, whose face is printed on this, and he says, Caesar, and then he says to his disciples, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, right? So that's the, the idea there. But Jesus tells the owner, or tells us rather, that the owner returns to the marketplace at several other times to get more workers. Working by the traditional Roman clock, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., right? The third hour is 9 a.m., and then at noon, and then at 3 p.m., and then the 11th hour is actually 5 p.m. We got one more hour to go in the workday. One more hour in the workday, and he goes and he hires. He makes five trips to the marketplace. He must have had a lot of work. He must have kept calling out for more people. He must have kept calling out for more resources. But notice that there are still workers that are there waiting to be hired. Not really sure why he didn't just take all of them at the same time. Maybe the van couldn't fit them all. Maybe he didn't think he would need that many. Maybe there were people that were doing like a half day's work, and then they said, instead of going home and watching Netflix, I'm going to go back to the marketplace, and I'm going to see if I can get hired again. So in that day, think about that. I don't know if anybody's ever stood around all day waiting to be hired. But think about the desperation that that is. They have a family to feed. 
They're not just doing this to pad their bank accounts. They're doing this to survive. So don't look at these workers as lazy. Look at them as desperate. Look at them. They're going to stand around all day. Even that one guy with one hour left in the day, he's thinking to himself, maybe somebody's going to come and hire me. And I can actually put food on the table today. These guys are probably the hustlers. They're desperate for work. And the owner of the vineyard is looking for workers all day long. And so, of course, this being a parable, there are deeper meanings. The vineyard is the kingdom. The owner of the vineyard is God. And he's seeking those who are his to be in his vineyard, to be in his kingdom. The kingdom people are his children. They're Christians who have come to understand their sin and a need for a savior and have recognized that that's Jesus Christ. Here's the point. People desperate for salvation will respond to the Lord. People desperate for salvation will respond to the Lord. When we talk about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, maybe you've noticed that before in here, Jesus kind of intermixes these terms. It all means the same thing. It means salvation. Like the rich young ruler said, how do I get into the kingdom? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? How do I make it to heaven? To get into the kingdom means to be saved. To be saved from God's wrath. It means to believe in Jesus Christ with everything that you have, that he is the savior and that he can save you. It means you are born again, as terrible of a term as that is, right? It's a biblical term. We were regenerated. We are made new. This is us, church if you have consciously turned from your sins and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, this is you. You are a Christian. This is also a picture of the general call of salvation. The general call of salvation is preaching the gospel. It is evangelizing our friends. It is, it is speaking hope in the name of Jesus. It is saying that we are sinners in need of salvation. That's the general call of salvation. And hopefully that's what happens here every single week at Highlands Bible Church. And hopefully that's what happens in our lives as we proclaim there is a Savior and his name is Jesus. But it also shows us the, what we call the effectual call of salvation. Meaning that until someone actually understands that, until their eyes are opened, it doesn't take effect. The general call of the gospel goes out all day, every day. But people couldn't be bothered by it. And sometimes... When the scales drop from their eyes and they understand it, those who are desperate for salvation from sin respond. These are God's elect, those whom God has opened their eyes to the truth of the gospel. And there's at least three things that someone who is desperate for salvation would have. First, they would have a realization that they're lost in sin. Second, they'd have an understanding that they can do nothing to save themselves. And third, they would have a complete dependence on Jesus Christ to save them. Just like the men standing in the marketplace. They have a realization that they're in need of work. They can do nothing themselves to make themselves work. They are completely dependent on someone to come and hire them for that work and pay them. This is powerfully illustrated by the Apostle Paul in complete dependence in Romans 7. 21 through 25, I think I put it in your bulletins. Paul, feel the frustration in this church. He says, so when I, I find it to be a law, when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. 
For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see that my members, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Do you catch the desperation in the Apostle Paul here? Who will save me from this body of death? I am wretched through and through. I am a sinner. There is nothing that I can do to save myself. Who will save me? And then right away it goes into praise and worship for Jesus Christ who has done it. Think about the parallel of the men in the marketplace, right? Who will hire me? How can I possibly? I can't do this myself. And then the man comes and hires him. Think of the joy that they felt. We feel the joy of the Apostle Paul. Do you guys feel the desperation of the Apostle Paul? Who will save me from this body of death? Certainly not me, just like the Apostle Paul. When I look at me, I see sin. I see sin at, the, at work in my heart. We must all come to this Paul moment when we come to Christ. We all have to have that moment where we're like, I am a sinner and I can't save myself. God has to do it. And praise be to Jesus Christ for doing it. Perhaps this is toughest for kind of the Christian kids among us, right? Those that have been in church since the time that they were wee little ones, right? Sometimes they don't necessarily feel like, well, am I really that desperate of a sinner? I love you kids, but you're that desperate of a sinner. We all are. And just because you might not have the testimony of something that someone else says where you know, they've had to experience horrific sin. You still are a sinner, lost, and in need of salvation. But we also, after conversion, which is probably more accurately where the Apostle Paul is talking about this, after conversion, we still wrestle with sin, don't we? We still wrestle with sin, and we still have that frustration, like, I, I blew it again. And you feel that Apostle Paul moment again. Who will save me from this body of death? Oh, that's right. Jesus Christ has saved me from this body of death. A daily desperate dependence on Jesus Christ to hold us fast, to empower us to continue to follow him, to mortify sin and vivify righteousness. But our original state, again, as we read from Jeremiah 17, we turned from Jesus Christ. We turned from the Lord into sin, and we are desperate for salvation. We hear the gospel, and he enables us to respond to it. People desperate for salvation will respond to the Lord. In our story, all these men have been hired, and the owner of the vineyard hopefully gets all the work done, and hopefully everybody's happy, right? Wrong, not so much. Look at verse 8. It says, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call all the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first, and when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, well, These workers only worked one hour, and you've made them equal to us. And we've borne the heat of the burden of the day all day long in the scorching heat. You can feel this coming, right? The end of the day, the owner has the manager call all the workers together to pay them. He tells them to start with the last. 
He's got a plan here. Start with the guys that have been here an hour and pay them. And imagine this. All the workers are lined up. It's, it's pay time, right? They've worked to some extent in the hot Middle Eastern sun, but not all the workers put in the same amount of time under the hot Middle Eastern sun. Some only put in one hour. Some probably put in 10 hours. Surely the owner of the vineyard knows this, right? Surely he's going to pay those who worked a full day a full pay. And surely those who showed up an hour left in the day, he'll pay them less, right? I mean, if you work a full day, you get a full day's pay. If you don't work a full day, you don't get a full day's pay. Everybody knows that, right? That's not what happened. Everybody gets a denarius. The guys who work 10 hours in the hot sun get one denarius. The guys who showed up with one hour left, maybe slacked off and checked their phones for 45 minutes and put in 15 minutes of work, they still get a denarius. Everyone gets the same pay. And our Americanness inside us is outraged because we're like, that's not, say it with me, fair, right? We just, that's just something that's in us right away. We don't have to teach our two and three-year-olds, right? Like, okay, we're going to talk about what's fair today. And so you guys can learn that, right? They just start saying that in their little minds, like, that's not fair, right? We understand that. I asked one young man among us who happened to be in my office when I was writing this passage, I said, what would you do if you were working with a bunch of people and somebody showed up an hour and got the same pay that you did and you worked all day and he looked at me and he said, I'd give him a knuckle sandwich. <laughs> okay. It's in us from the beginning. We feel that, right? The workers protest, they grumble, they complain. What the heck? We work 10 hours. It's 147 degrees out here. And these slackers only worked one hour, and they get the same pay? Spurgeon poetically writes, as soon as the penny was in their hand, a murmur was in their mouth. It's not fair. Or is it? I guess it depends entirely on your definition of fair and entirely on who's defining the word fair. The workers don't set the rules. The owners set the rules. And he paid everyone what he decided to pay them. That's his prerogative. Just like salvation, not everyone is saved at the same time, nor from the same place, or have same the amount of fruit in their lives, right? But in the end, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we say this, salvation isn't fair. Salvation isn't fair. And I hope that makes you stop and think like, huh, is that right? Is he preaching heresy? Are the elders paying attention? Salvation isn't fair. Why not? You don't want to talk to God about fair. You really don't. If it was fair, we'd be in hell. That's fair. We don't deserve salvation. We deserve hell. These men think that they have been treated unjustly, and yet they have not been Carson wrote powerfully, do you really want nothing but totally effective, instantaneous justice? He says, then go to hell. Because that's what we all deserve. Salvation isn't fair. We don't want God to be fair with us. Reason being is that we are all sinners. Every single one of us, we're all enemies of God by our nature and choice. This is our default position as human beings. God should not air quotes, should not save anyone. But in his jaw-dropping grace, 
He saves those who are desperate for salvation and those he chooses to open their eyes to the unbelievable power of the gospel. There's a few other considerations, though, when we think about the fairness of salvation. First one is that the Gentiles, right, probably 99.9 of us are, are Gentiles, meaning back in, those, in that day, in first century, right, there's Jews and then there's everybody else. We're the, we're the everybody else, right? What's so special about the Jewish nation? Well, they're the nation of God. Only nation on, ever, ever that God created, that God says, you will be my people and I will be your God. And I will give you the covenant, and I will give you the law. And not only that, salvation will come through you, and you will be a blessing to everyone in the world. But these are the people of Israel. Not only that, God speaks of Israel several times as his vineyard. For example, in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, he says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So when, the, when Jesus starts telling a story about the vineyard, you better believe the disciples went right to, cool, that's about us, Israel. We're Israel. We're always the vineyard. That's us. We're the special people of God. And Jesus, of course, came to fulfill the covenant and fulfill the law and fulfill the prophets. And guess what? It was always global. It wasn't ever just going to stay with Israel. God's plan has always been global. Jesus came to fulfill it. And we are, as Romans says, the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, guess what? Now we are grafted into the people of God. We're grafted into the kingdom. What did we do to deserve that, Gentiles? Nothing. We're not the people of God. We weren't given the old covenant. We weren't given the law. We weren't given the prophets. We weren't given any of that. But God, in his grace, grafted us in, in the new covenant i bet israel doesn't think that's too fair sometimes right that's one of the reasons why they resist jesus as the messiah no 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 no, no, this is us this is just us and jesus says no it's not fair they didn't start with you guys but they're going to finish with you guys second aspect of this has to do with how we might look at other christians especially those who have been recently saved imagine being a christian for four or five or six decades Faithfully following Jesus, raising a family, gutting out sanctification day in and day out, being faithful for 50, 60, 70 years. And the day before Jesus Christ returns, a homeless drug addict confesses confesses faith. And you walk into heaven together. Is that fair? Yes, it's fair. It's grace. It's fair in the eyes of Jesus not fair in the eyes of us but we got to look through his eyes maybe not so much to us does it seem fair but it's very fair to god the vineyard owner at whatever point god ordains us to repent and believe the gospel then we grow and bear fruit one of the ways that i really know when somebody has received the gospel for sure is that they start to lament all of the years that they didn't know christ they're sitting with a a blessed old saint. And she received the gospel. She understood it. And one of the things she couldn't get out of her head was the realization, I have wasted 80 years. I said, you haven't wasted 80 years. This was your point of salvation. And you're going to grow and you're going to bear fruit for as long as the Lord has left for you. And that's grace. 
brings us to a third aspect. We are united to the vine. Jesus himself. Jesus works in us. He prunes us, which is not fun, but that's the way it works, so we can bear more fruit. You might be thinking about Jesus' famous words in John chapter 15, where he says this point blank. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Church, we are the vines in God's vineyard. And when we think about the reality of salvation not being fair, is it fair that God bears with us in our weakness and our sin, that he comes along and he snips off those branches and it hurts but then we grow and we bear more fruit. That's not fair to us, but it's grace. God, the, the vine dresser, as we're united in faith to Jesus Christ, the true vine, we must remain, we must abide in him. And maybe even look forward to him pruning. I know, it's crazy to think about, but it's for our good and it's for our fruit and for his glory. Is any of that fair from the world standards? No. We weren't in the old covenant with Israel. We sometimes incorrectly judge other Christians and their fruit or their lack of fruit. But still God bears with us as we abide in him. Is that fair? No, salvation's not fair. If it's not fair, then what is it? Look at verse 13, back in Matthew chapter 20. But he replied, this is the, the vineyard owner then replying to the workers. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose to with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last shall be first and the first shall be last. I love that the owner answers them back. <laughs> He doesn't let them get away with just giving him static and then walking away. Right? He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. But hold on. Hey, uh, didn't I give you what I said I would give you? Then what is your actual problem? Right? Uh, your, your actual problem is not that you didn't get what you said I was going to give you. Your actual problem is that you're taking issue with me because I want to be generous with what's mine. Does that make any logical sense at all? The Greek here actually accuses them literally of having an evil eye. They're not seeing this correctly. In fact, they're seeing it with their sinful hearts. On the one hand, you can understand like, why those who worked a full day are upset. Dare I say, some, most, all of us would be upset in some way, shape, or form, right? If you worked all day in the sun and the same person who worked an hour got the same thing you did, but that misses the point. 
It's the prerogative of the owner of the vineyard to pay what he wants to whom he wants. And doesn't he have a right to do that? It's his vineyard. He's the one who agreed with you. He's the one who hired you. You'd still be sitting in the marketplace scrolling on Instagram on your phone, not making any money today if he didn't pick you up. And Jesus adds the familiar saying from verse 19 or chapter 1930 once again at the end of this but he reverses the order if you notice that from the first time to make his point now he says the last will be first and the first will be last jesus states this like it is and like a like a fact this is the way it is in my kingdom this is the way it works the last will be first and the first will be last it's not up to anything or anyone who will be there when they be there it is up to me completely and entirely and jesus tells us that god is the owner and he treats people how he chooses and that is not unfair that's the point that's what jesus is telling us the vineyard owner is watch this sovereign over his vineyard he can do with the workers and the vineyard what he wants to do he's in control of everything and that's his right and that's not unfair and so God, likewise, is sovereign over his creation and his kingdom. Sometimes we run around with the, the false idea that this world is not under God's control. It still is. I mean, you look at news and it looks like a dumpster fire. But that's something that God is in control of still. This is still his kingdom now. He's still ruling and reigning right now. And he's still sovereign over everything right now. And we hate that sometimes, don't we? It goes against everything in our American bodies because we're like, nope, I'm the one who's in control. I'm the one who's in charge. I'm the one who made myself something. This is the illusion. We get sucked into thinking that we are the sovereign rulers of our own little vineyards, and we're not. There's a vineyard owner. There's a kingdom owner, and it's not us. And when things happen to point out the undeniable reality that we're not the ones in control, right? We freak out because we're reminded that we are not the ones in control. But if God is good and God is sovereign, then why freak out? Why not trust him? And he can be trusted ultimately with the most important aspect for any of us at all, which is our salvation. And here's the quick point. God is sovereign over salvation. God is sovereign over salvation. Again, these words are so critically important. I want to spend some time unpacking them. God being sovereign, again, means he has complete and total control and authority over all things in his creation. This is critical church for us to understand. We have to acknowledge this truth. Scripture's totally clear about this. It's not often that you see some of these scriptures on uh, coffee mugs or t-shirts, but maybe we should try that sometime, right? Psalm 115.3 says, God is in the heavens. He does what he wants. Ephesians 1.11 tells us that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Romans 11.36 tells us that from him and through him and to him are all things. This includes salvation, and he's in complete and total control over salvation. 1 Peter 1.3 tells us that according to his great mercy, he has caused us 
to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ through the dead. Ephesians 1.4 tells us that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. I could go on. God is sovereign over salvation. He calls people from all walks of life, from all backgrounds, from all ethnicities. God has done the work to save us through Jesus Christ. He draws those who are his to himself. He opens their eyes. He grants them faith and repentance, and he is sovereign over salvation. This is both a comfort and a really hard thing when we're praying for people to be saved, is it not? We all have friends and family and loved ones that we wish that we could take the, the gospel out of our hearts and implant it into them. We can't do that because God is sovereign over salvation, not us. What's our responsibility? Our responsibility is to be legit. Our responsibility is to live a life of faithfulness in line with what we've been called to. Our, line is to, our, 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 our responsibility is to open our mouths to proclaim the hope of the gospel. We need to use words. But it's up to God to save, and so we pray with everything that we have for God to do so. There's a huge danger of not understanding God's sovereignty and salvation, and it creeps into every aspect of our lives. It's spiritual entitlement. Spiritual entitlement means that you can subtly think that you just deserve stuff from God. If you don't recognize that God is sovereign and that he's in control of all things, including your salvation, then suddenly what do you start to think? I am. And maybe God is in service of me. And so when things don't go the way that I want to, I freak out again. Why? Because subconsciously in my spirit, I think I'm entitled to better. God, what are you doing? This is, this is not the arrangement here. Did you not know you're not the one in charge? I'm the one in charge. And I don't, really don't like how my life is going right now. The spiritual entitlement creeps in. Spiritual entitlement means that you think you deserve salvation. You deserve God's treatment, God's best treatment. It means that it's God's job to love, to forgive, to accept. No, it's not. It's really not. Sometimes it's pastorally the hardest thing for me to say to somebody is, I don't know what God you, you're, you're thinking of, but it is not the God in the Bible. He doesn't exist to make our lives comfortable and happy. That's not his job. Spiritual entitlement seeks into every single aspect of our lives if we don't submit to God's sovereignty. We've got to remember that. We think that God owes us comfort, that God owes us joy, that God owes us fill in the blank. He owes us nothing, church. Church, presuppositions are everything what we think about something, how we've come to understand something, right? If we suppose, presuppose that, that we're the ones in charge, that God is in our service, right? The spiritual entitlement, and then stuff happens in our life, blammo, reality just came in contact with our presupposition, and now we have a major crisis. But instead, if we have a healthy understanding of the doctrine of God's sovereignty, then we understand that he is in control of all things, and we understand that he is good, and he is there with us. And watch this. He can and has to be trusted with his kingdom, with his vineyard. We recognize God as sovereign and that he saved us. Let's start with the most important thing. If God can be trusted to save us from his wrath, 
Can he not be trusted with the details of our entire lives? And also, I would submit to you that who cares about the details of your lives if you're not saved? Because you'll spend an eternity in hell. You think what you're going through now is bad, spend an eternity apart from Jesus Christ. Right? So dwell upon, first and foremost, the complete undeserved grace of our salvation. The sovereignty of God. Is that not going to bring us joy? Is that not going to bring us peace? Is that not going to give us comfort and gratitude and trust in Jesus Christ who has saved us? You should then delight in the fact that God is sovereign over salvation and that he lavishes us with grace. And so put sovereignty against this parable, right? Vineyard owner is sovereign. He does what he wants with his vineyard. It's his, it's not unfair. But also, what does he do? He lavishes them with grace. Those people don't deserve a denarius. Let's face it. Let's be Americans for 30 seconds. No way. They deserve whatever fraction of a denarius would be. If they get anything at all, they do not deserve it, but he gives it to them anyway. That's grace. When we talk about salvation, it's all grace. God owes us nothing, yet through faith in Jesus Christ, we get everything. Yet how often do we see this truth? And while we're defining terms, let's de define grace. Simply, it means undeserved favor. Going back to what we said before, we deserve hell, don't we? That's fair. What do we get through faith in Jesus Christ? Forgiveness, restoration, eternal life, the Holy Spirit within us, all of that. Is that not the biggest dump of grace there ever was? That's grace. The great R.C. put it this way. This is not a parable about grapes. It's a parable about grace. God is absolutely sovereign, but he's also absolutely gracious. Just like the general call of the gospel and the effectual call for salvation, there is both common grace and there's special grace. Common grace applies to every single human being on the planet Earth. People exist. Let's start there. You exist. Common grace. God created you. You're alive. You're breathing. Common grace. You're created in the image of God as human beings. You breathe God's air. You are sustained by his hand in the beating of your hearts. When you sleep, you wake up again. You get to enjoy sunshine, the beauty of God's creation, relationships, marriage, sex, work, sense of fulfillment, babies, children, puppies, chipotle. All of that is God's common grace for every single person. But then there's God's special grace. God's special grace, his irresistible grace, and the call of salvation that goes out as children respond. It's the way then he regenerates us into new people. It's the way that he sustains us, especially in trials. The way he subjugates every single trial, not for our punishment, but for our good and for his glory. That's special grace. In the way that he forgives us and continues to think of us as holy and justified, lovely and forgiven, the way that he looks at us through his son, Jesus Christ, it's the way that he will bring us home to eternity one day. Church, our God is truly gracious and he's truly sovereign. Put those two concepts together and I hope you see the big idea. Salvation is an act of God's sovereign grace. Salvation is an act of God's sovereign grace. It's tempting to think about each of those terms as not compatible with each other. But they are in our God. 
This is the part of the jaw-dropping realization of how deep our God truly is. He's completely and totally sovereign over every single thing that happens in his creation, and he works them all for the purpose of his will. Even evil. Even though he doesn't cause it, he harnesses it for his purpose, redeeming good from it, showing his power and glory. He's always doing billions of things, and sometimes we get to see one of them. God is sovereign over salvation. He calls out like he's doing right now that says we're sinners in need of a savior. Repent and believe the gospel so that you can be saved, so that you can be renewed, and you can be reborn. He gives us a new heart and a new life and a new inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Church, we need to realize our desperate dependence on the Lord. Once the Holy Spirit opens our eyes through true spiritual, the, seeing our true spiritual condition that we're all guilty and separated from God in desperate need of a Savior, we respond, but only through his enabling. And after we respond, he sustains us by that same spirit. We continue to respond, as it were, by the way we live our lives, continuing to what? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, continuing to kill sin and bring righteousness to life. Is God sovereign? 100%. Just like the vineyard owner, it's his world and he runs it the way he sees fit. Is God gracious? 100%. Just like the vineyard owner, he lavishes us with grace and we don't deserve it. This is the glory of God's sovereign grace. We would do well to press into these things. Let us pray that the Spirit will give us understanding in these things and strengthen us in these truths. Father, we thank you for the time that we spent in your word this morning, this familiar parable that shows who you are. Lord, help us to understand. These are huge spiritual concepts to wrap our minds around. Help us by your spirit open our eyes. Lord, if there are those here who have not submitted to you as Savior and Lord, grant them faith through your spirit. But for those of us who have, open our eyes to the truths of your sovereignty and the truths of your grace. May we anchor ourselves in both of those things. May we reject spiritual entitlement. May we walk in the strength that you provide and bring you glory as we bear fruit in your vineyard. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.